Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. I'm Anne. Today we have Amy Kate, an advocate for partners of those with sexual addictions and a survivor of two marriages that ended due to sexual addiction. She has six awesome kids. She's trained through the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. We call that APSATS here and also by the American Association for Sex Addiction Therapy, which is AASAT. She is a fierce warrior determined to point women to freedom and healing found at the feet of Jesus. And she's also a customer service representative at Covenant Eyes, and she can be found at psalm40warrior.com. Welcome, Amy Kate. Thanks for having me. So, Amy Kate, welcome. We're going to talk to you a little bit about your personal story. So, we know that you went through two marriages with sex addiction. Tonight, let's focus on the second marriage and what happened there. Can you talk to me about what your life was like before that D-Day with your second spouse? I was divorced from my first husband, who was a porn addict, and I met this guy who was everything that I never imagined existed. He was soft, he was sweet, he was feminine, but not in a weird way. He was just this really super awesome, amazing guy. I was not actually a Christian at the time, neither was he. Um, we dated for a couple years and then we bought a house together and we went to church and we both got saved in that church. And when we got saved, we got convicted for living together. So we got married. I had already had six children from my first marriage and he was a very good stepdad. My children were rather young. It was a pretty normal life. I had the kind of relationship that my friends were jealous of because my husband was always home. He would do chores. He didn't leave his underwear on the floor. He looked like this model man and life was good. I had all kinds of health problems, but even despite all that, life was just good. Then in 2010, after a couple major surgeries and a foreclosure on my house, we moved and everything just kind of changed within the relationship. He was very different and I couldn't figure out why. Of course, I thought it was me. Um, I, well, I thought it was me or my kids because, uh, you know, it couldn't possibly be him. And so I kind of just started creating my own world outside of him. I had been a stay-at-home mom, which I loved, but I opened up a photography studio. So we were a pretty normal couple. We didn't go to church, which was unfortunate. I kept trying to get him to try new churches, but he was very resistant. And, and as time progressed, he got more and more distant. I started seeing more anger and our sex life pretty much almost disappeared. And then one day, September 20th, 2012, I was on his computer. I had all his passwords and he had all mine. You know, we had nothing to hide, right? So I looked at his computer history. Not really sure why I was looking at his computer history because he swore that he never watched porn. And I believed him. I saw a bunch of the meetup groups and in his history and all the profiles that he looked at were female. And I thought that's really weird, but I kind of brushed it off thinking that he was looking for a tech meetup group because he's a tech guy. As I kept looking and seeing all these female profiles, I, it was literally just like a, 
like a light bulb went off and I out loud to myself said, my husband's having an affair, but I couldn't see anything. So I ended up combing through his computer, trying to find something and I, I couldn't find anything. And so then I went upstairs and I got his phone and I started looking through the phone and I didn't see anything until I found the Google voice app. And when I found the Google voice app, I took the phone downstairs and I promptly read two years worth of texts from his affair partner. So that was my first D-Day. Yeah, like as, as I'm telling it, I, I can literally feel still reading the texts from her. And at first I thought it was just virtual, but it wasn't just virtual. Uh, by the end of the texting, I realized that they had actually met in person. For our listeners, maybe some of you are not familiar with the term D-Day. I've used it on the podcast frequently and I realize I've never defined it. In this context, D-Day means Discovery Day, the day that you discovered your husband's sex addiction, husband's secret life, that he'd been lying to you. In my case, my worst D-Day was when my husband was arrested for domestic violence and I realized, wait a minute, the behaviors I've been experiencing for the last seven years have been emotional abuse and physical intimidation. So that day when everything came to a halt, that is what we refer to as D-Day. We would love to hear about your D-Day, what you experienced. If you go to btr.org, you can find this podcast and you can comment anonymously about what happened to you. We would love to hear your experience. We also have a secret Facebook group if you'd like to join our community. You can join that secret Facebook group for free and share your stories there as well. Okay, thank you. Sorry to interrupt you. If I can actually piggyback on the telling your story part, I think that is probably one of the most healing things that a spouse can do is tell her story. Mm -hmm. The more you tell your story, the more healing you get. At least that's what I've experienced as well as with the women that I've worked with. Telling your story is super, super hard, but there is so much healing in telling that story. So please share your stories. I confronted him. Of course, he tried lying and minimizing. And then I decided to relapse myself. I am a recovering drug addict. And in my cabinet, in my kitchen, I had a gift. One of my clients had flown me down to Florida to shoot their wedding. And they had special favors of tequila that had their names. And it was super cute. I kept them in my cabinet. But that day I went and grabbed the tequila and my own relapse started and didn't stop for quite a while. Wanted to kick him out, but I was too busy yelling at him. So I didn't kick him out. Then I tried to get to the whys. And of course it was all me. You know, it was everything that I was doing wrong. I went into this, I have to become a perfect wife because I drove my husband to an affair. That lasted a little while, longer than it should have. Then the relapse got worse for me and he was still doing things that I didn't even know existed yet. And so I led the quote, I'm doing air quotes here, recovery by handing him books and finding him therapists and trying to teach him how to help me. And the whole time, everything's getting worse for us. There's more fights. He's starting to get borderline violent. He never actually hit me, but he would trap me in rooms when I wanted to leave to get away from a discussion or he would 
try to force his way into rooms if I didn't want to have a discussion right then and there. The behaviors just really escalated. About 15 months of this chaos, and unfortunately, I did my own sexual acting out. I don't know. I thought it was revenge. I thought that would make me feel better. All it did was make me feel worse. And to this day, it still breaks my heart that I did that. So 15 months later, nothing was better. Everything was worse. And I clearly had PTSD at this point. The symptoms were there. I was a twitchy mess. That's how I described myself. So I kicked him out. Two days later, after I kicked him out, the floodgates opened and I found out about all the porn and the men and the prostitutes and everything else that went along with the sex addiction. So for 15 months, I thought it was just an affair. And then everything else came out. When he did all that admitting, he was really broken. Like you could see he was, he was legitimately broken. Because I have so much history with recovery from addiction, I know that change is possible. I let him come home because now I had an answer. This is why we haven't been able to heal. It was because of an addiction. Well, now we can fix the addiction. Mm -hmm. So I let him come home. And then I tried to control his recovery because he still wasn't doing it. Were you still active in your addiction at the time? The answer is yes, because I wasn't fully committed. I would have bouts of sobriety and then I would relapse again. And yeah, I pretty much was still active. So apparently that's my response to a D-Day is to relapse or was. It's not anymore. You're having ups and downs with your own recovery during this time. And then you get the bombshell of finding out that he has been looking at porn. He's been with other men. He's been visiting prostitutes. And where are you then? I was a weird mix of terrified, shocked, but hopeful. Again, I believe in the power of recovery. I know that an addict can change. I know that because I changed. I know that because I know a ton of addicts that have changed. Mm -hmm. And actually, the addicts that I know that change, they're some of the most authentic people you'll ever meet. Yes. So, I mean, I know that change is possible. And so I, ha I did have that hope, but I was terrified. I feel the same way, by the way, even with what I've been through. My ex-husband's not in recovery. Well, lately I've been praying every day that Christ will revive him. Like, literally, Amen. like, bring him back from the dead. Amen. Because I watch him and I, I want so badly for our family to be together, even though he's my ex-husband now, and even though I hold a no-contact boundary because of his lack of emotional health, we still want our family to be together. I am with you there. I absolutely believe that addicts can change. And that's what's so difficult about the situation and really what breaks your heart. And also what gives you hope. So as you're hoping for him to change, what are you doing? I did my research, but I did the wrong research. I ended up in the female co-sex addict codependent books. I didn't find the right path to healing for a long time. I was slowly starting to recover me because I had lost me at this point. I was literally unrecognizable within a couple months of him moving back home after the second large disclosure. That's when the PTSD got insanely 
bad. Him coming home, nothing changed. I mean, all the behaviors that come along with addiction were there. He was still lying to me. He was angry. He was blaming me for stuff. We were having circular conversations that made me feel absolutely insane. I did not know my reality. Was what he said just true? Am I actually crazy? I really wrestled with that one for a long time. And then I got some form of, I guess it's a agoraphobia. I was so triggered whenever I left my bedroom that I basically lived in my room for like a year. I remember there was a period for a couple weeks where just going to the bathroom was traumatic, which sounds exaggerated, but really it was. Like I, I would put my hoodie on and I would put my hood over my head. For some reason that made me feel safer. And I would literally run to the bathroom like there was this monster in the house that was going to get me and then run back. And my bedroom was like my cocoon. It was the only place I felt safe. And, and I missed a lot of my life for almost a year in that place. And the whole time he's acting out and of course saying he's not, you know, he's claiming his sobriety from the rooftops and, you know, she's actually just crazy. And actually later I found out just not that long ago, even after the divorce, I found out that his therapist had suggested to him multiple times that I needed mental health because he was afraid for my own safety. And my ex-husband chose not to address it with me. He, like he didn't even acknowledge it despite a trained therapist saying your wife needs help. Was he sleeping in the bedroom with you at the time or is he sleeping somewhere else in the house? After he moved home, he was in the bedroom for a very short time. Then he was on the couch. Okay. So he's not in the bedroom with you. And so thus you feel like you at least have a little bit of a safe space, kind of. Yes. But not really, since you're still terrified. Yeah, that was just my cocoon. Mm -hmm. We were just kind of in this chaotic cycle and... The behaviors progressed. He pushed me. He grabbed my arm once because he was arguing with me. And I said, I need to stop this conversation. And he grabbed my arms and was trying to force me to talk to him. And he did it so hard that they bruised. And I didn't even realize that that was physical abuse. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that thought never crossed my mind. And then one time he pushed me into my car. Um, he was starting to get mean with the kids. And I mean, everything was just escalating. And my children were really suffering because, you know, mom's locked in her bedroom and, you know, dad's gone crazy. And it was, it was just a really, really rough time period. Then the depression really kicked in. I stopped eating. I literally did not care about anything I have a brain condition that gives me migraines and I was on meds for it and I did a bunch of research on how many I would have to take to commit suicide. I counted them out and I went out to my car. I was going to take them all. Sorry. This part's just a little, a little hard because I have kids that I love and I was so depressed that they didn't even matter and as, as a mom that's really really hard to admit but that's how low things had gotten for me and I, I should I should have explained I have literally no family none mm. 
and he had isolated me from my church and from my friends. And so I literally was alone. And so I'm sitting in my car with this bottle and I hadn't been to church in a couple of years. All of a sudden I keep hearing this, not, well, not literally hearing, but call Robin. Her name is Robin, a woman from my old church. And Robin and I were never close. I mean, I know her, I liked her, but it's not like we were good friends. I just kept feeling this call Robin, call Robin, call Robin. And I'm like, I don't want to call Robin. I'm done. I'm done with life. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I summoned up the nerve to call Robin and I went over to her house and I vomited my entire story on to Robin. That's the first time I'd ever really told my entire story and she had no advice. She just listened. By the end of it, I got angry. All of a sudden, I asked her for a Sharpie. You know, she's kind of looking at me like I have three heads, but she gets me the Sharpie, and on my wrists, I wrote, live free, one on each wrist. That day, I decided that I, I was done. I was not going to end my life because he couldn't fix his, and that's really when recovery started for me. Wow. You have a very powerful story. And I really appreciate your candor and sharing this with us today. And I'm really sorry for all of your pain. I can hear it in your voice. And so many of our listeners have felt similar feelings to what you felt. So when you decided to recover yourself, what were your first steps? The first thing I did was go back to church. I knew that I was so far in a pit, I was not going to be able to get out on my own. I started reading my Bible all the time, and I stopped listening to any kind of secular music, and I just kind of surrounded myself with the Word of God, and I actually sought out people for the first time. I started telling my story to anybody that would listen because I needed help. I was so desperate that I didn't care if you were a rock. If you could help me, I was going to tell you my story because during all of this, <laughs> I found out that five of my six children had struggled with pornography. It was just really bad. I started going back to church and I found a couple different websites that had me doing exercises on like visualizing what I want my life to be, what my values are. I learned the word boundary. You know, I had never mm -hmm. heard of it. And then I started reading books and piece by piece by piece, I started getting better. And then I found a Facebook support group. And that's really where things started taking off because people understood and I wasn't crazy. And I needed people to tell me that I wasn't crazy because I wasn't sure. Now I call them my tribe. And that's really what it feels like. I had a tribe. I had these people that had my back. Like I said earlier, you can join our secret Facebook group by going to btr.org, scroll down, and you'll find join our community. Add your email. We'll send you an email with the instructions about how to join that group. That's so fantastic that you were able to find a support group through Facebook. So then you've got the support. Tell me what happens next. I figured out what boundaries were and I made them. He faked it for a little while. He was really good at faking it. Things were not changing. So I actually kicked him out and I filed for divorce. Wasn't ever what I wanted, but I was literally dying 
So I felt like I had no other options. Somewhere in there, I got the job at Covenant Eyes, which also significantly helped my healing. And we were a month away from divorce when I heard about a program called Teen Challenge. It's actually designed for drug addicts. It's like a rehab year-long live-in program. And I felt led to tell my husband at the time, I'll stop the divorce and see who you are if you commit to go to Teen Challenge. And of course, at first, when I felt like that's what I was supposed to do, I told God no. (laughs) God and I argued a lot about that one because I was done. I didn't want to do this anymore. I I couldn't, but I listened. I resentfully submitted is a good way to put it. (laughs) I I totally Um, understand what you're saying. I have had so many moments like that. Yeah, where I did the surrender process, but I did not want to. Yeah, I get it. It it was kind of like, I know you want me to do this. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to obey anyways because I trust you. Mm -hmm. And so I offered it to him. And I kind of mostly offered it to him because I didn't think he'd say yes. But he did. He went away for a year. He quit his job and he lived in a program for a year. He got better for a couple months and relapsed in Teen Challenge. Or so he told me. Now he says he didn't actually relapse. He's changed the story so many times I don't actually know the truth. But either way, he wasn't getting better. So he graduated Teen Challenge and seemed better, but not good. I was still very afraid of a relapse. There were still a lot of red flags for me. So he moved in with our pastor for a while so I could see how he could handle life on the outside. My landlord in the house that we lived in gave us 30 days notice because he was selling the house. So I had to find a new rental that would accept my brood of children and my animals while I'm working full time and still dealing with trauma. And so I actually let him move home to help me. So we got the new house. It spiraled very, very quickly over the summer. And he went from a fairly soft, sweet guy back to those old bad behaviors physically threatening me, the anger, the lying. And then I caught him with porn and I kicked him out. I can't imagine what you're feeling. Well, I kind of can actually. (laughs) Sorry. Part of me can. So you send him away for a year. You're doing what God asked you to do. You have faith in God. And he's been through this program. He moves back home and it all just totally falls apart again. Right. I mean, I'm imagining that you were completely devastated at this point. I, I started going back into I call it PTSD land where I kind of lived with just just all the PTSD symptoms. What made me make the decision to kick him out was the agoraphobia thing came back again. And at this point, I had regained my life. I was an active mom. I was who I was. I was fun. I was light. I was doing things outside in the world. I could handle football games for my son. I was me again. And then this relapse over that summer, 
all the old stuff started coming back in me and I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going there again. I gave him a two week warning and literally nothing happened. He made absolutely no steps towards fixing his relapse. I gave him his two weeks notice and I kicked him out. Wow. How are you feeling about God at this point? Oh, I'm angry. (laughs) I would be too. I'm thinking God's told you to send him to this year thing, right? You've been doing all this alone. He comes back and basically he's not changed at all. So I'm kind of like, God, why? Why Why didn't you just have me end it a year ago, right? I mean, we've all been through that thought process. I just went through a year of basically hell while he's in rehab. And he's not even out two months and he relapsed. What am I, what am I missing here? (laughs) Something's not adding up. Yeah, I was, I was angry. I felt betrayed by God. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. What, what did you do to repair your relationship with God? I had to tackle a couple big triggers. Music. I love worship music. But all my worship music reminded me of my husband. So I stopped listening to that. There's this one song that talks about, I'm going to take back what the enemy has stolen. For the longest time, that song resonated with my husband and I that, you know, we were going to take back our marriage. I decided that I was going to flip that song around and it wasn't about my marriage anymore. It was about what the enemy stole from me. And one of the things he stole from me was my faith in God. And he didn't get to have that. He got my marriage, but he doesn't get to have my faith. He doesn't get to take the pieces of me that I like. Basically, I declared war on Satan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I tackled every trigger I had around it. And honestly, I kind of yelled at God a lot. I yelled at God some more and... And then, and then I yelled at him some more and every time I did it, I I could feel him saying, I understand, but I got this. I kicked him out and he moved 900 miles away. And in this process, I also met coach Ray between coach Ray and learning what I learned at AppSats it was literally like everything flipped and everything made sense. And just in that short period of time, I've done more healing than I did in the two years before that. Coach Ray is amazing. She is. She's my girl. We got divorced. The divorce is final. And I actually offered reconciliation. Obviously, if it would require repentance and recovery, That has not happened, and he has basically abandoned the kids. He has absolutely no contact with them whatsoever. Right now, that's the hardest part, is watching my teenage girls go through that abandonment. Yeah. My ex, he moved from a city he was living in temporarily back to the city where we live. He told his friends, I'm so excited to move back. I can spend more time with my kids yada, yada, yada. And then from the day he moved back, he did not see the kids for four weeks. Now, I know that's not completely abandoning them, but it's so interesting to me that they can just not realize the impact that their actions are having on other people. I'm so sorry for your children. Yeah. It stinks, but it's so good to know 
that so many other women understand and are walking this path with us and that we do have support from them. We have amazing professionals like AppSats coaches who can help walk us through and we do have God. We are not alone in this journey even when we feel like we are. Amy Kate will be here again with us next week talking about demystifying the behaviors of sex addicts, the things she's learned being trained by AppSats and also her training with the American Association of Sex Addiction Therapy. So I look forward to talking about that aspect of how do we understand these behaviors that are happening when they don't make any sense. If this podcast was helpful to you, please rate it on iTunes. We are also on SoundCloud. Every rating increases our visibility with women who are isolated and need our help. Betrayal Trauma Recovery is a 501c3, and your donations make this podcast possible. So please go right now to btr.org backslash donate to donate to keep this information coming. Women need it so badly. Thank you, Amy Kate. I will see you next week. Oh, thank you. And until next week, stay safe out there.